Joshua 10, verses 1 to 27. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of their royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me, and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua, and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valour. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekar and Makedar. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them, as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day, when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machedah, and it was told to Joshua, The five kings have been found, hidden in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave, and set men by it to guard it. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hands. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. 
and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, and the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel, and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. In verses 1 and 2, uh, we're reminded that there is a threat. And it's a threat that we've heard about before in this, in this book, isn't it? It's the opposition to God, the opposition to his promise, and uh, it's the kings of the land who are rising up against God and his people. We heard about them in, in, in 9, verses 1 and 2. And remember, that was the obvious threat last week. And we said, we're not going to look at the obvious threat, we're going to look at the subtle threat. And then we're going to come back to this in this chapter. Um, and it is here, isn't it, right up front in chapter 10. So Adonai's Zedek is the ringleader. He's the guy who calls all of his mates, the four other kings, and they get together and they, they wage war, but they don't wage war on Israel directly. They wage war on Gibeon. Because Gibeon is the, has turned its back on them and has gone, to the, gone over to the people of God. Uh, so it's Gibeon um, who we've met before. And in the last chapter, Gibeon tricked Joshua into making a pact, a promise. We read about that in 9 verse uh, 9. Uh, sorry, uh, 9 verse 14, it says that Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So that's the promise. They are promising them that you are now part of God's promise and the promised people of God. But the question you've got to ask is, where's the power in that promise? Is it just that they've said it? Is that, is that the power? Or is there more power behind that promise? And what kind of power is behind that promise? The reason that's an important question for Gibeon is because there's quite a lot of power coming against them in the five kings that have now raised themselves up and are just about to wage war on them. So it's a pretty important promise, isn't it? Where's the power behind that promise? Is there any power behind that promise? Or is it the kind of promise, as I've said before, that we kind of make but we've got no power to actually do anything about? You know, the things we say to our kids or the things that politicians say to us. We're going to do this. Well, hang about. Can you really make that happen? Where's the power behind the promise? Uh, does, the power, does the promise have power? And in this context, this question comes when it looks as if all the power is on the other foot. That the power lies with evil men and not with God and his purposes. Doesn't it? It looks like that. Let's read it. In verse 4, he says, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. 
Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And this is the question from the men of Gibeon. The men of Gibeon, notice is exactly the same language, sent to Joshua just one man. Not four, one man. Saying, do not relax your hand from us, come up to us and save us and help us. Exactly the same words as, the, as, as Adonai Zedek said. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So, is there any power behind your promise, Israel? Is there any power behind the promise your God makes? Or is it just words? When push comes to shove, when things get tough, is there any power to it? And I think that's the question behind this chapter, and I think it's the answer we get as the chapter unfolds. Um, so, that was chapter 9, chapter 10. And we've read that one. What we see in this chapter, and from the events that follow on, the power behind the promise is God. His power is behind the promise. Uh, We're going to see that in a number of ways. We're going to see that he rules over all creation. We're going to see that he actually listens when his children ask, when people talk to him and ask him for help. And that he has victory over evil. Those are the three things we're going to see. So the first one we see, he rules over creation. Having spent the whole of those first seven verses introducing these two superpowers, well, one of them doesn't seem so super, does it? But uh, having spent all that time in verses 1 to 7 introducing them, the five kings and their armies all going up against Gilgal, Gilgal and Joshua, in verse 9, you hear that Joshua went out to the people. Uh, he, he, what does it say in verse 9? Came upon them suddenly having marched up all night. But then what you'd expect to find is kind of loads of talk of hand-to-hand combat between these two groups, right? That's what you would expect from a battle, is people fighting. But actually what we find next is not that at all. We find all of the mention of what God does. It's God's actions in verse 10. Have a look. It says, And the Lord threw them, And the Lord struck them, and the Lord chased them, and the Lord struck them. All those verbs are are attributed to him. The power behind the promise is God, and it's him who's going to do this. And he is God, and he is the creator of all things. And that's why the promise has power. His promises have power. And he rules over all creation. So that's the thing we see next, isn't it? In verse, um, verse 11. The biggest losses to life on that day are not from the sword, but from the skies. They're not from the sword, they're from the skies. And there are two things that we see. We see hailstones and then we see this kind of uh, delayed kind of day um, in the next verse, in verse 12. Um, so from the skies, uh, the, the hailstones, let's read about that first in verse 11. As they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven 
and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed by the sword. The God who rules all of creation, who commands the skies, the weather, he is the one behind the promise. And so that promise has power. When push comes to shove, Gibeon, who has bet everything on this promise, realised that that was not a dodgy, risky bet. He is God. He rules over all creation. And he can intervene on their behalf. And he does that, doesn't he? So, power behind the promise is God. We've gone through this. He rules over all creation. And that's the, the hailstones. And the next one is there in verse 12. God heeds what his children ask, what people ask him in prayer. That's the other thing we see about this, God. He actually responds to what people ask of him and what Joshua asks of him in verse 12. With another amazing miracle, isn't it? Something to do with this day that he he intervenes. Let's read of that in verses 12 to 13. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Now, that word stand still is actually be silent in the original language. So what we don't quite know is if this is, because Joshua is attacked in the early morning, whether this is saying, sun, don't shine, rather than what we tend to think, which is, the sun stood still in the middle of the day and there's this really long day. We don't know whether it's actually a prayer for the darkness to continue. Because if you think about it, if his whole strategy was to attack at night under the cover of darkness, which is why he got there early morning, actually prolongment of darkness would be a benefit, <laughs> not dawn. And if there's hailstorms, there could be darkness. So, so that's, that's just worth noting, that that word standstill means to cease or be silent. Um, moon, be silent. And the sun was silent. And the moon was silent. doesn't necessarily have to mean that they're sort of not moving. It's just that they're not, they could be not shining uh, because of other things. But even so, what we have here, we shouldn't be so sidetracked about that, about what happened necessarily. And we shouldn't just be surprised that God is list- uh, that the moon and the sun are actually, and the, and the weather is responding to the God of creation, because that's no surprise. If he made them, we'd expect that to happen. What should surprise us, and what should actually bowl us over here, is that God is listening to Joshua. That God is responding to what Joshua says. That, that God is listening to a man. And responding to what he's asking him to do. That should really shock us. Because we don't think like that, do we? We tend to think that God's going to get on with what he needs to do without us. And yet here we have an example of him intervening on behalf of Joshua. And responding directly to what Joshua asks him to do. A lot of religions would 
paint God as being entirely removed from his creation. So as human beings, we have no rights and, and, and we shouldn't even expect him to respond to anything that we ask of him. Uh, and, and actually, they would say that even for him to do that would actually make him not God. Somehow he would give up his deity if he did that. But that's not the God we find in the Bible, is it? We find a God who is intervening, interacting, responding to what's going on in his creation and to, to human beings, to us. That is a surprise. It's not that the sun and the moon respond to what God says, it's that God responds to what we say. That is really surprising. It's obviously not um, giving us complete freedom to ask of him, to demand of him what we want. Um, the thing about the God of the Bible is that he brings us into relationship with us. So we had the Lord's Prayer just a little while ago, didn't we? Our Father. There's a relationship and intimacy which means we can talk to him and, and, and speak to him on that level. And yet that prayer also helps us to see that there's things that we, that we should ask him. Your will be done. So it's not, it's not that Joshua is asking him for anything other than what God has already said he will do. What's Joshua asking for? He's asking for him to, to win the battle and to do it in this way. So Joshua isn't going completely off-piste here and saying, I've got an idea, God, and this is what you've got to do. Joshua is saying, no, God, you promised in verse 8. What did he say in verse 8? I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So your will be done is always related to what God has said he will already do. And that's how God's people are to pray. And they can pray with boldness and confidence that God will do what he has said he's going to do if we ask him. In our lives. Today. That God will continue to do what he said he's going to do and uh, here. And what he's going to do in our lives as well today. That is an amazing thing, isn't it? We're going to come back to that at the end. Um, but for now, we're just going to see that God... The power behind the promise is a God who heeds what we ask of him as his children. And that should really amaze us. That we would have a God who does that. That he would interact with us in that way. That he would invite us to have that kind of relationship with him. It's amazing. And what, as I've said before, already, what Joshua does ask, the promise that he's basing everything on is the God who's going to have victory over evil. So what Joshua is talking to God about is you're the God who has victory over evil. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. The sun stopped and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel so God has said I'm giving them into your hands this victory is mine and it's sure and Joshua is saying okay I'm going to ask you about that I'm going to trust that that's you've said that and so I can ask you to do it and that's why he heeds his his, his request victory over evil is the last thing we see isn't it in this passage the power behind the promise is the God who rules over creation, 
who listens to his children speak to him and who will have every victory over evil. And we get the scene, don't we, at the end of the battle. Um, the kings have kind of ducked for cover. Notice they're sort of cowards. Can I say that? They've ditched everyone else. <laughs> they're off in the cave, you know. We're going we're gonna to save ourselves. And yet Joshua puts the, the rolls of stone over the cave, finishes the battle first. He's not going to let the kings go, get away, but he is going to finish what God has said he, he needs to do first. But you get this scene, don't you? And um, it's, it's the reason that, as a child, I wasn't allowed to watch the last ten minutes of the film Braveheart. Because, I don't know if you have watched the last ten minutes of the film Braveheart, but we know, don't we, that every battle, you know, in terms of military battles, ends pretty much with the leader being the one to be put, put to death. That happens in the film Braveheart. Sorry if I spoiled the ending for you. Um, freedom! Then, yeah, okay, that, that didn't work it out. But um, that's why I wasn't allowed to watch that scene, because it's pretty graphic, isn't it? Last couple of scenes, him being put to death. But what we get in this last scene is not just that, okay? There's more to it than that, because if it was just a ceremonial you know, dispatching off of the kings, that's just the kind of thing we do at the end of a battle, that we've defeated him kind of thing. Why is that here? What's the purpose of it? And let's have a read in verses 22 to 27. And have a lookout for where Joshua locates the power of the victory. Okay? Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of the kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards, afterwards Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remains to this day. The difference we find here is not in the ceremonial killing. That's pretty similar to lots of other battles you might find but in the words that are spoken and they hold significance don't they because in any other battle guaranteed Joshua's words would be come on lads this is testimony to the strength of your arm and your courage and your you know your fighting ability and your leadership this is testimony to what we can do He doesn't say that at all. What you find him saying is, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Joshua is locating the power behind the promise in God and not in themselves. He's making a statement, isn't he, that this is one victory and it's a momentary victory. But but this is proof 
that all the victories will be God's. And that he will have every future victory. And he will have victory over evil. So this is the God who rules over all creation, who listens to us, his children, when we talk to him. Particularly about his victory over evil. Because he is going to have every victory over evil. And that's exactly what we see, isn't it? Played out in this chapter. Him having victory over evil. And uh, of course, the kings of those places were, were put to death then. We have to wait until next week to see that actually the towns where the people fled to will also be destroyed. So there's a, there's a, a now and not yet kind of thing. The leaders have been put to death. But there is going to be a final rooting out of all evil that's going to happen. That's what God is going to do. And Joshua can say that with confidence in what he asks of God, because it's true. He knows that that's what God has promised. So what what have we seen? We've seen that the power behind the promise is God, who rules creation and commands it, who heeds what his children ask for, and who wins, will and will win every victory over evil in this world. And as Christians, we know this God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we see in him? Well, during Jesus' earthly appearing, we see he has supreme power over creation. So he's in the boat with his disciples, and it's all going to pop, and there's a massive storm, and Jesus speaks, and it goes to nothing. Absolute control, absolute power. Jesus also told us, his children, God's children, to expect and to seek him to do great things. Even greater things than they've seen him do. Because it will continue the work that he's already established. It's within the the framework of what God is doing in, in, in bringing his plans to bear. And finally, sorry that was the middle one, and finally at the cross... This is what Sam was talking about in the, in the opener. In what looked like defeat, Jesus was actually having victory. That victor's crown was actually because he was triumphing over evil and over the forces of evil. Now, obviously, it doesn't look like that, does it? But we have to, if you want to know more about that and you want to know how Jesus put evil to death by his own life, he took it, all the punishment on himself. For evil. But in that, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, um, and someone can shout out a reference to that. I see it's on the screen, I think. There you go, I've done the, done the hard work. Two, chapter 2, verse 15. If you'd like to look at it in your Bibles, it might be good to turn to it as well. Has anyone got a page number? 984. Would you mind reading us that, Nina? Is that okay? Uh, if you read from verse um, verse 13 onwards to verse 15. And you, in the name of trespasses and your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made a lie together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
You can see in the footnote um, from that number two in verse 15, when it says the rulers and authorities, it says probably demonic rulers and authorities. So what Jesus, this is describing the cross and it's saying what Jesus did in the cross is to put that evil, the evil rulers, uh, the demonic forces to, to death. Put them to open shame and triumphing over, over them. So that, so that he would have the final victory. And it's a bit like the kings, isn't it? Because the kings are the leaders and they get put to death. There's still a process of eliminating all of the people in the land to come. And Jesus, in his death, triumphed over Satan, the prince of darkness, the one who holds everyone captive by the forces of evil and the things that we do. And yet there will be to come the day when Jesus returns. And on that day we can expect that he will root out all evil in the world. He will, com- he will sort of completely uh, remove their influence. Whereas before there was this kind of decisive final, like a blow that he dealt them at the cross. He is going to show that he's going to root out all of their influence when he returns. So what that means is that God is still doing what he said he's going to do. He is still pushing back the the darkness, the evil in the world. And he will do that finally when Jesus returns. So when we, uh, if if you're not a Christian and you're new to the Bible, Gibeon is a good example to go to, I think. Because they were people who knew nothing of this. And yet started to hear what God was like. And they said, we want in. And they, they didn't go about it the right way. We saw that last week, didn't we? They sort of did it their way and they thought that they were the ones in control and they started to cheat and, and do stuff. But God accepted them because of his mercy and he brought them in. And because of that, the power behind the promise is him. And they will not let any, he will, um, finally, all of the evil will be dealt with. That they can be brought in because of what Jesus has done. That would be a great thing to do. It would be great to respond to him, knowing that we need that. That we should be on the losing side. That we should be on the side that opposes him and that otherwise we would be. And yet, that yet because of what Jesus has done, we can be brought into um, to his people and um, if you're a Christian this shows us an amazing privilege we have that the God of this universe that the God of creation would listen that he hears what we ask of him and as Christians we have this massive privilege to ask him to root out evil in our lives and that's not telling, asking him to do something that he hasn't already promised to do. He has had the victory over evil. And part of our enjoyment of that is to ask him to continue to have those victories in our lives. When we're, when we're struggling, as we do, and when we're so defeated by the temptations that we've given into, to come to him and say, Jesus, you've won the victory. 
over sin and over death. Have this victory in my life. It's not a, uh, it's not a physical war, is it? God's people aren't called to take up arms and to start waging a physical war. But there is a spiritual war, a spiritual battle. And to have God, to, 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 to ask him to be working out his purposes and, and defeating evil by the gospel, by Jesus and what he has done. Both in our lives and in the places around us. When we ask in line with his salvation plan, like this, we can have that bold confidence in what we ask God. We can come to him and just say, this is what you have said. We're we asking you to do this. And he will do it. Um, I'm going to pray, and then perhaps we'll take some questions. Some, maybe something in this chapter that you thought. Um, I just want to hear a bit more about that. I'm not quite sure why that happened. Um, you might not be able to fully formulate the question yet. But what I'll do is, um, I'll give you a moment... Uh, maybe a minute now to, to pray in response to what we've been hearing just quietly and then I'll pray and then we can have a time of questions.